Romans chapter 6. That's where we are. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those blue ones, has, been, has already been mentioned. You can turn those blue Bibles to page 942. That'll bring you to our section of Romans that we were in. We were looking at verses 1 through 14. We've been doing that now for, for multiple weeks. This is part 6. And I have been, I've been trying to, you know, as we're working our way through this text, I constantly am thinking of different ways to try to present to you the teaching of Romans 6, specifically this section, that it'll make sense, that you'll get it, that it'll click. So I thought of another way to do that again. So let me ask you a question in light of that. Do you think it would be okay for a person who gets married to go on living as if they were single? Nope. Why? Disaster? God forbids it. All these different answers. Okay. So there's general agreement that it's not okay for a single person to go on living as if they're single once they're married. Is that the general agreement amongst this body? Okay, well, the answer to why, let me give you one answer. Clearly, it would be disaster. Okay, we know that. But listen, here's just a simple answer. They're no longer single. They're no longer single. Their status has been changed, right? Because we see it on Facebook. That's how we know. (laughs) The single person who has entered into marriage has been joined to another person. Joined to them. The Bible explains this uh, marriage this way to single people actually become one flesh. One flesh. Very interesting. And this special union should significantly impact the way that the married person thinks and lives. It should result in a different lifestyle for them than the lifestyle that they previously had as a single person. Would you agree with that? Right? And if I was counseling a married person who had fallen back into the habit of living like a single person, I would remind them that they need to recognize that they are officially done with singleness. In fact, I might even say it this way. Their singleness died when they started their new life with their spouse. And now they must live accordingly or in light of that new union. You with me? Simple, right? And we all know this. We can see this. Now, beloved, listen. Somewhat, not exactly, but somewhat similar to that picture I just gave you. If you are a genuine Christian, real, authentic, not make-believe, Not just a professor professing Christianity, but not really possessing it. Not really being born again. I I continue to make that distinction because there's lots of people who claim to be Christians, but they're not. So if you are clearly a genuine Christian, then according to the word of God, listen, you have been united with Christ. And as a result of this incredible and very real union, you have not died to singleness, Okay? But you have died to sin. 
You died to sin. And you have risen again with Christ to walk in newness of life. The old you, the person you were before you came to Christ in saving faith, the person who lived under the rule and reign of sin, the old you, the one who was under the governing power of sin, that person is entirely dead in Christ, and the new you is alive to God and has been energized to manifest the very righteousness of God, of Christ, through the Holy Spirit, through His power, through the one who dwells within you. And beloved, for a Christian, for a Christian to go on living in sin is as ridiculous as a married person who goes on living as if they were single. Huh? Yes. I'm going to say it's more ridiculous. As I've said before, true salvation, true salvation is God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ, rescuing the sinner not only from the penalty of sin, but also from its ruling power, from its dominion, so that the redeemed sinner, the Christian, the saint, as the Bible refers to the redeemed, the saint. Did you know that? Did you know that's how the Bible refers to you if you're a Christian? Did you know that? You're a saint. Now, see, we get confused, right? Because there's a really large religious organization called Catholicism. And what they say is that the only place where there are saints is in heaven. And they, get to, they determine, I guess, when they become a saint because they've done so many good deeds or performed some miraculous thing or so on and so forth. And then they identify this person or that person as a saint. But they're only in heaven because there's no saints on the earth. The Bible has a, a very different description of who is a saint and who isn't. Christians are called saints in the Bible. Every Christian, even the messed up ones, which is every Christian. <laughs> God has rescued us from the dominion of sin every Sinner calling them a saint that they might live for God and progressively in this life become more and more like his righteous son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me show you something. We were in Ephesians last week. Thomas took us through that section. We we're looking at how to live wisely. Let me just take you back there. Same chapter. Just I want to show you something. I want to show you how the Bible speaks about us. It's all the same idea. You're not the old you. You're not what you used to be. And because of that, you must live differently. Ephesians chapter 5, you don't have to turn there, it'll pop up. But if you wanted to turn there, you could just flip to the right, you'll eventually find it in your, in your New Testament. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 3, the Apostle Paul, same man who wrote Romans, he says this, listen, but sexual immorality, anything that's not according to the Bible concerning sex, and all impurity or covetousness, listen to what he says, it must not even be named among you as is proper among who? Is he talking about someone else, like a special group of Christians? 
No, he's talking to the church in Ephesus. He's talking to believers. He's talking to those who have been redeemed, who have been rescued from sin, from its power, from its penalty. He says, these kind of things, they shouldn't even, people shouldn't even associate these kind of things with you because it's not proper for the saint to live this way. They've been called to something else. Listen, he goes on, verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. I wonder if we really, if we seriously considered this passage, if it would change our viewing choices, of what we watch and what we saturate our minds with, or even what we say. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Listen to what he says. Which are out of place. What does he mean they're out of place? They're out of place for you. That's the, that's the behavior of the unredeemed sinner, of the one who has not been rescued. That's the behavior. That's what you would expect, what you would not expect, which, which we should not expect of the redeemed sinner, the rescued sinner, is this kind of behavior. It's out of place. Huh? Out of place. If it's in your life, it's out of place. You've been called to something else. You've been rescued for that very purpose, he says. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Our lips should flow with thanksgiving. Because we have every reason. We, we should be the most thankful people on the face of the planet. For God has redeemed us. He has saved us. He is rescuing us. Then he says in verse 5, for you may be sure of this, you can be sure, you can know this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Listen to what he's saying. He's not saying, all right, listen, um, what you need to do is you need to be a good little person, and when you're a good little person, then you can be sure that you'll go to heaven. That's not at all what he's saying. He's just simply stating the obvious. Those who continue to live a certain way, live sexually immoral, impure, they're idolaters. Those people, you know they're not, they have no inheritance in Christ's kingdom. Why? Because they've never been redeemed. They've never been rescued. They've never been saved. If they were saved, they wouldn't continue in these things. Hello? Hello? Six, let no one deceive you with empty words, useless words, vain words. For because of these things I just read off, Paul's talking about here, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Beloved, we are no longer, if you're redeemed, if you're placing your faith in Jesus Christ, you are not a son or daughter of disobedience. That is no longer your title. Therefore, do not become partners with, what's it say? Them. Do you see? Paul is making serious distinctions. Who's the them? The sons of disobedience. Those are still enslaved to sin. Those are still living sexually immoral lives. Covetous, idolaters. Now listen, you saints, Paul says, don't you dare become partners with them. Don't go back to that nonsense. It's not proper for a saint to live like this. It's not proper. Verse 7, therefore, 
Do not be partners with them. Eight, for at one time, what were you? What, what were you? You were darkness. That's what you were. You were a son of disobedience. You were a daughter of disobedience. But no longer. You were darkness. But no longer. But now you are, what? Light in the Lord. That's how we became light, beloved. I didn't just work up light one day. Check me out, man. Little self-reformation. I'm no longer in the dark. No. When I placed my faith in Jesus Christ, he brought me into the light. He took me out of the darkness. He rescued me from sin. Huh? So Paul says, this is how you're to walk then. This is how you're to live as saints. Walk as children of light. Children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all this, all that is good and right and true. Walk as children of light. You know, I know, I know we identify ourselves as sinners. We do. We, you know, one, probably a better way to identify ourselves still as, is to say that we're justified sinners, we're redeemed sinners, we're rescued sinners. We're no longer just sinners, okay? We're saved sinners. But even more so, maybe we could just, I think it's good to always remember that, know what we were, know what God has rescued us from, know what we're still dealing with. But we got to cover this other side. We are saints, We've been changed. We've been transformed. Something has happened to us. And because of what has happened to us, we can no longer go on living in darkness. Huh? Huh? Okay. So as we know, we can, we can find agreement here, right? But then on Monday, So you're going to need to remember these things. You're going to have to rehearse these things back to yourself again. You're going to have to recall the word of God. You're going to have to believe the word of God. Let's look at the text, shall we? Let's do that. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. I'm going to read the entire thing and we'll jump into it. What shall we say then? Paul says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Maybe. By no means, absolutely not. How can we, how can we, Christians who died to sin, still live in it? Verse 3, do you not know that all of us, Christians, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, us Christians, might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, that is Christ, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, rendered powerless, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, 
He lives to God. So you also, Christian, must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. We're under grace. Glory be to God. So on inside of your bulletins, you'll see this note. We're simply continuing as we have been for some time now. To, we're examining Paul's question, his explanation, his exhortation. These things are found in, in this section of God's Word here in verses 1 through 14. And we're doing that so that we might understand the true foundation for our sanctification. We've talked about that now several times and experienced ever-increasing victory over sin in our lives. So we had the question, the explanation, the exhortation. We have covered the question. We're in the middle of covering the explanation, and we will cover the exhortation next week. So, this is my sixth message as I sit on this section of Romans. I have at least one more to go. At least one more. We'll see what happens. Today, I'm going to pick up where I previously left off two weeks ago, which was in verse 7. Anybody want to quickly review for the rest of us where, where we covered a couple of two weeks ago? Any volunteers? Okay, so I'll do it. Today, we're going to focus primarily on verses 8 through 10, but uh, before I do that, I just, want to, I just want to review a few things that you don't miss the big picture. No one misses the big picture because, you know, we've been in this passage now for a while and you can kind of maybe get lost. I don't want you to get lost. The first point of the outline that we covered already, as I said, was the question, the question, what question? What question? Huh? Yeah, it's in verse 2. It's that rhetorical question. Remember we talked about that? Paul presents his Christian readers. Remember who Paul is writing to, to Christian readers. And we find this this question in verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? The answer is, the answer is assumed. We can't. Thank you, brother. We can't. The idea is absurd for the Christian. Listen, it's not absurd for the unsaved, the unredeemed, those who are not rescued, to continue to live in sin is not absurd. That is what they do. That's what we can expect. But it's outrageous to think that the Christian would do such things. Now, this doesn't mean, listen, this doesn't mean, this is by way of reminder, that the Christian can't sin. It doesn't mean that. And I've said this a million times. If it does mean that, then we're all in trouble. It doesn't mean the Christian can't sin. It doesn't mean that the Christian doesn't struggle with sin. Huh? Any of you struggle with sin on occasion? Right? Once a year? Um, every day? There's a wretch right there in the middle of the, the audience. Every day. Wow. <laughs> but yeah, every day. Uh, it begins the moment you wake up. Sometimes. Often. <laughs> It also doesn't mean that at times that the Christian won't live entirely inconsistent with the reality of what God has made them in Christ. Do you know what I just said? It doesn't mean that. 
It doesn't mean that at times the Christian might live inconsistent with who they really are. That's possible. But the idea that the true Christian would continue in, remain in, persevere in a constant state of sin or sinfulness is an outrageous idea. Why? Because the Christian died to sin. Don't miss that. There's something that happened to them. And it has serious, or it has a serious impact on their life. And what does this mean that they died to sin? Well, Paul expounds further on that reality in verses 3 through 10, okay? 3 through 10. And it's verses 3 through 10 that I refer to in the outline as the explanation. So you have the question in verse 2. This is all review. Question in verse 2, that rhetorical question. Starting in verse 3 all the way to verse 10. You could say all the way through 14, but we pick something up new in 11. It's a, I'm going to tell you now to do something based on all this, okay? So that's that exhortation. But 3 through 10, he's now explaining why he just said what he said. How can we who died to sin still live in it? I'm going to tell you. I'm going to explain that further, 3 through 10, okay? And then in 11, based on everything I've said, boom, here's what I'm going to tell you to do. Now, I can't possibly go back over everything we have discussed already in verses 3 through 7, which we've already covered concerning this explanation, but I do want to briefly summarize for you, okay? Is that all right? You need to know and believe. You need to know. It's intellectual. You know it. You know it to be true, and you need to believe it. That the moment you became a Christian, again, assuming you have, there is something very significant and meaningful that happened to you. And I am certain that there are Christians who are not aware of this. Just maybe they've never been taught this, but they definitely need to be because this teaching is the key to their sanctification. The key to them becoming more and more like Christ and having increasing victory over sin in their lives. And that significant thing that has happened to you and is the key to your sanctification is the fact that you were united to Jesus Christ. You were. You were joined to Him. You were incorporated into Christ. You were baptized into Christ, as Paul explains it. That's the terminology he uses. And this spiritual union with Christ, to which Paul refers, is truly life-transforming because being joined to Christ, you have been united with Christ in his death and resurrection, in a death and resurrection like his, which consequently frees you from sin's ruling power or any claim sin had on you and results in newness of life for you, a trans formed life, a life that is now capable of manifesting the very righteousness of Christ. With me? So the person that the Christian used to be before coming to Christ, the person who was under the rule and reign of sin, the person who was absolutely powerless to live for and please the Lord. Did you hear me? You're powerless to please the Lord apart from Christ powerless. That's why everyone running around trying to get good with God without coming to Christ is wasting their time. They're still enslaved to sin. They're still under his dominion. 
They don't have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of them. They haven't been redeemed, regenerated. That person, the one we used to be, died with Christ. They died with Christ when they came to Christ. They died with Christ in his death so that they might be freed from the enslaving power of sin in order that they might live for God, that they would serve God and manifest his righteousness in their lives, in this world, in their homes, in their communities, in their places of work, in their church. You with me? So now we come to verses 8 through 10. That's where we left off last week. We just got to wrap up the explanation here. It's still part of that, 8 through 10, following that rhetorical question in verse 2. But before we look at those verses, what I want to do is I want to tell you up front what I believe to be one of maybe the main important idea that kind of flows out of these verses, 8 through 10, and that is this. Here's the main idea, I believe. Since Christ's death and resurrection, we'll see this as we work through the text, since Christ's death and resurrection were events which occurred once, once, only once, and are absolutely irreversible, and because of our union with Christ in his death and resurrection then it is clear that our death to sin and newness of life are also entirely irreversible. Irreversible. So then, our freedom from the bondage of sin and our new life in Christ are permanent and ongoing realities forevermore meaning that we can never again be placed under sin's enslaving power. The old us died with Christ in his death to sin, so we have been forever separated from the realm or the domain in which sin rules and reigns. And in, in Christ, we have been made forever alive to God, which reinforces the fact that it is absurd. It is absurd for someone to think or suggest that the Christian might ever live in an ongoing state of sin or sinfulness, which is exactly the crazy idea that is proposed in verse 1. In verse 1 of this section with this question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Is that what we should do? I mean, God likes forgiving, and if he likes forgiving and likes showing off his grace, why don't we just continue to live in sin? Are you kooky? You can't. That's, that's what Paul is saying. You've missed it. Something happened to you, Christian. You can no longer do that. It's, it's not possible for you any longer. You must not do it. By no means, Paul says. Now, this is where the marriage example I gave you in the beginning, remember I talked about marriage and singleness? This is where I said, it. all right, these are similar ideas, but my example breaks down like most examples do. And the reason why is because the married person can officially become single again. Hello. Right? 
the married person can become single again. How's that possible? Well, death or divorce, right? They can become single again. But the Christian united to Christ can never again, never again be enslaved to sin or fully come under its dominion or governing power. Why? Because Christ's death forever took care of that once and for all. Done. It can't, you can't go back. It's irreversible. That is for everyone who has been united to Christ through saving faith. One writer makes the following comment concerning these verses. I think, let me just try to encapsulate everything under this, uh, capture this idea in your mind. Our union with Christ, our union with Him, which occurs at the moment we place our faith in Him, we trust in Him for our salvation, it begins, that union begins with a once-for-all death to sin. And it continues with an unending life of service to God. This is why it is ridiculous to suggest that we might continue in sin that grace would abound. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Our unity with Christ, our union with Him begin with the once-for-all death to sin, and now our life is an unending life of service to God. How can we go on living in sin? You see? I hope you see. I hope you're getting it. I hope it's making sense to you. All right, let's just quickly work through verses 8 through 10. We'll capture some of the things here. Romans chapter 6, verse 8, Paul says this, Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. Okay? We believe we will also live with Him. I'm going to get a little technical with you for a moment, so bear with me. Uh, Bible commentators, those who make comments on the Bible, study the Bible, scholars, and they kind of help us understand the Word of God, they're skilled in these things. Commentators are divided on whether the future tense verb, stick with me, the future tense verb, do you see it in the passage? It's will live, will live. We believe that we will, there's also in between there, but will live is one word in the Greek, and it's a future tense verb, will live. They're divided on whether that verb is a chronological future or a logical future. What does that even mean? Well, if it, listen, if it is a chronological future, then Paul is saying that sometime in the future, chronology deals with time, right? Chronology? If it's a chronological future, then sometime in the future, like in heaven... Paul is saying, then, we believe we will live with Christ. Is that true? I mean, is that true? If, if it is saying that, is that a true statement? Would it be okay if it said that? Would that be contradicting anything else the Word of God says? No, no. So that, that in and of itself is a true statement, but I don't think that is what Paul is getting at. I don't think that's what he's saying. Based on the context, I agree with other Bible commentators who understand the future tense of the verb will live to be a logical future. What is that? Logical future. Well, it means that there is a certainty that one thing will follow the other. 
that one thing will follow the other. And in this case, because we have died with Christ, then we believe or know for certain that we will also live with him. Not just sometime in the distant future, but right now. Right now. And going forward forevermore as a logical consequence of having been united to Christ in his death. That's the position I am. I'm going to take here, okay? So one writer says, and I'll show you why. The one writer says, this is not a promise. They're just saying what I just said. This is not a promise here in verse 8 of life after death with Christ in heaven, but of a life to be lived out here and now. So he's talking about. Listen, the whole context of Romans 6, right, that we've been looking at, he's talking about this is what's true of you now, so this is what should be true of you right now. Now in the present life. I mean, the idea that, to me, the idea that he's, all of a sudden he's going to take us into the future and somehow thinking about our resurrection bodies in the future will, will somehow influence us to not, you know, to live for God right now. It, I mean, you can make arguments, but I don't think that's what Paul is doing. I think he's just saying, listen, you are participating right now in the resurrection life. We can anticipate that. We can expect that because if we died with Christ, certainly then we will be risen with him and we have been. We have been. There is right now going on you, if you are a Christian, this newness of life. Now, beloved, it's not completed yet. It will be completed when we receive our glorified and exalted and sinless bodies, right? So there's a process, but when did it begin? Does it begin in heaven? Are we waiting to get to heaven before we start to live for God? Or does it begin right now? Hello, right now. Right now. Resurrection life going on in me right now. You see that? This is why it's out of place. It's not proper for me to live any longer in darkness. It's not proper. One writer says this, I'm going to say the same thing, but I just, again, I find it helpful to hear from multiple uh, sources sometimes saying the same thing in a slightly different way. Verse 8, this commentator says, verse 8 is but a repetition of what Paul said in the second half of verse 5. What is that? Well, in verse 5, Paul says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall be, or we shall certainly be united with with him in a resurrection like his. Stop. Don't read, don't read. So the writer is saying, oh, thank you. Excellent work, my brother. The writer, because you know they'll do it, right? I say don't, and immediately because of that terrible rebel nature we have, right? Oh, then I must read it because he said not to. All right. Uh, Where was I? Oh, Paul. So the writer is saying, listen, I think it's just a repeat of the last part of verse 5. And when I went through verse 5, I didn't say anything to you about this because it says, well, we believe if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will be united with him in a resurrection like his. Well, guess what? That's future tense too. I think it's the same future tense, a logical future tense. I don't think it's chronological. Okay, I don't think it's chronological. I think he's not saying, hey, guess what? Someday we'll be united with Christ. No, it's right now. He's just saying one follows the other. Is that not what happened to Christ? Christ died and he was resurrected. We died with Christ and we were resurrected. And the completion of that work is going on, but it will not be completed until our glorification. Romans 8. Okay, so back here. 
Uh, The writer says this, We must not be tripped by the expression, we believe that we shall also live with him. There are some who assert that the apostle is merely saying, we just hold on to a belief in the resurrection by faith, physical resurrection. But that is not what he is saying, and I agree. This belief really stands here for we are well aware of the fact, or we are sure. He says, if we died with Christ, it follows, that should be it, it follows of necessity that we shall rise with him. If we really are joined to him, and everything that happens to him of necessity happens to us concerning these matters, death and resurrection, then it follows that if we have died with him, we must also rise with him. What the apostle is saying is that because of this doctrine of our union with Christ, it follows beyond any question that if we have died with him, we must of necessity rise with him. We have not only died, we have risen again into a new and resurrection life with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the proposition or the point of, that's proposition, point. This is the point of verse 8. I think that's right. I think that's right. Others find something else there, but I think that's correct. Now, the point that Paul keeps making in this text is that what has happened to Christ, he's saying, Christian, you got to know this. What has happened to Christ in his death and resurrection has also happened to the Christian by sake of their union with him, which explains again why it is crazy to think or suggest that the Christian would continue in sin. It's just, it's just reinforcing it once again. All right, verses 9 and 10. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Don't just, please, don't, just remember, when Paul is, he's, now he's telling us, okay, here's what happened. Here's what happened with Christ. Why would he tell us that? Because what has happened with Christ has happened to us. And we need to believe that. We need to believe that, which I'll show you in verse 11. That's what he's saying. That's, we need to believe that so we'll live according to it. All right, so... And the other thing I want to tell you is you should know that the meaning concerning some of the details that are found in these verses, 9 and 10, we're not going to get into it because they're thoroughly debated among Bible scholars and some of their discussions are, are frankly a little difficult to follow. So what I want to do is I just want to share the, the main idea, the basic idea of what I think Paul is saying in an attempt to not get lost in some of the details. It's not that the details aren't important. It's just I don't want to miss the big picture here. And the the big picture is this, that because of the Christian's union with Christ's death and resurrection, his one-time death to sin, because of that, the the Christian can never, never have the same relationship to sin that they had before. They can't. Can Christ ever come under sin again as he did? Can he ever? No, it's done. Do you see? It's done. And because of that, they cannot continue in sin. I mean, how can they be united with Christ in a death like his? They died to sin and being united with Christ in a resurrection like his, they have risen in newness of life. 
So here's the flow, I think, of verses 9 and 10 as I see it. Just kind of try to follow here. Paul says we know, we know that the resurrected Christ will never die again. Never. That's, right? Never. Not a chance. Why? Well, he says death no longer has dominion over him. Meaning basically, listen, basically it means this, that death has forever lost any power that it previously held over Christ. And you might think of it this way. Death is sin's executioner. It's sin's executioner. The wages of sin is death. And the reason death or sin's executioner, if you will, has forever lost its power over Christ was because the death Christ died was to what? To sin. The death he died was to sin, and he did this once for all, according to verse 10. Now, I wonder when you read that phrase, once for all, I wonder what you think about that. But let me tell you what it, what it means, because that's how it's translated in the ESV. But it, the Greek term, it simply means this, once only. Once only. Uh, once and not again. Okay? I don't know what, you know, maybe you read that once for all. All people. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Once for all, it's once for all time. It's once and for all is a better way. That's how we say it now. We say, I'm done. This is the last time I'm doing this. Well, I don't think we say how do we how might we use once and for all? Have you ever used that phrase? None of you. Okay, so that didn't work at all. Once and for all. I mean, this is this is the last, this is it. This is I'm not gonna do this again, is the idea. It's a it's a one-time event. The, the NRI NIRV, one Bible translation, it translates verse 10 this way: when he died, Jesus, he died once and for all time as far as sin is concerned. It's done. It cannot be repeated. Hello. You see, listen. So you go, okay, that's nice. It is nice. It's important because I've been united to that death. I've been united to that death. It's done. Never to happen again. It's irreversible. I've been freed. Never again to come under slavery. Uh, of course, unless I put myself under it, which is what we do like fools. But now it's a choice. See, that's why I was talking to you about that phrase, sinner, right? I know why we use it. I know why we say it. I do it myself. I say, hey, we're sinners. That's true. But just we got to clarify, we're justified sinners. We're redeemed sinners. We're saved sinners. We're sinners who are being changed, transformed into the image of Christ. I think we should always clarify these things. Uh, let me show you why. At one time, right, slavery was the law of the land here. And then the slaves were emancipated, freed, okay? They called them free men. Would it be right for a free man to continue to say, I'm a slave? He's not a slave. He may have lived or she may have lived as a slave for many, many years. 
But no longer is that the case. That is not their title. That is not who they are. They are free. So they must no longer live as slaves. They must no longer live as slaves. That old master they had, they don't answer to him or her anymore. Right? That old master might come a-calling. Hey, you, do this. And maybe just out of old habits, they might do this or that, but they no longer have to. They can turn to the master and go, I don't know who you're talking to. It must not be me because I'm a free man. I don't answer to you any longer. I'm free. And this freedom can never be reversed. Ever. Well, that's not in my notes, but you know, that kind of stuff just pops up and stuff. Where was I? Now the Greek word, listen, so here we go. So Christ's death to sin, let me just, let me just kind of review and then we'll close. So Christ's death to sin was a decisive and unrepeatable event, okay? That's the point, a de- I think, a death that fully and forever abolished any rights or claims sin once had. When Christ died to sin, he abolished for every single person who would put their faith in him any rights or claims sin had on them before. He abolished it. He destroyed it. That's what his death accomplished. And we have been united with that death so that sin no longer has any claim on us. Not only penalty-wise, but also any power. Do you, you understand what I'm saying to you? Do you understand? Because this is key. How do I fight off all these urges I still have? How do I fight off all these temptations? How do I live for God? You've been freed, Christian. You're dead to sin. Oh, but I don't feel dead to sin. Remember we talked about that? Yeah, I get that. Believe. Believe. Believe, trust, and obey. You know that song, trust and obey? I'm not going to sing it because I don't sing, but I do sing, but not well. But I'm trust and obey. This is, I'm trusting in Christ. I'm trusting in what he has done for me. That gives me the ability to walk in the light, to walk as a child of light. I'm trusting in what Christ has done on my behalf. I'm trusting on that special union I now have with him in his death and resurrection, dead to sin, alive to God. One writer says it this way. I like this. The cross was sin's final move. The resurrection was God's checkmate. The game is over. It's over. Sin is forever in defeat. But you know what sin says? I'm not in defeat. I'm alive and well. And you still answer to me. What do you say to that? Okay. I mean, there's nothing I can do about it, man. This is just who I am. Stuck. in sin. And I'm making light of it, but it's no joke at all, really, because sin destroys lives. It ruins lives. It breaks families apart. 
Huh? Right? This is why this is so important. Husband, wife, friend, family member, brother, sister. What is true of Christ in this case is true of the Christian. Maybe that's just the big picture you could get. What is true of Christ concerning his death and resurrection and the implications of that and what it means, it is true of me. It is true of you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. We have permanently been removed from the dominion of sin. We lived over here in this kingdom where sin ruled and reigned. Ultimately, sin would take us away and separate us from God forever. That's called the second death. We no longer live there. Jesus came in, sinless, took upon himself sin. His people's guilt, their sin. He did it. He took upon himself. He became the sinner's substitute. He bore the penalty. He came under, temporarily, the power of sin, voluntarily. Of course, he never broke, right? He never sinned. He was perfect. But he came under it for our sake. And when he died, it was over. There was nothing left for sin to do. And he rose again. He's out of that dominion. He rose again. Living to God. Resurrection life. Beloved, it is the same for us. This is where we lived. We no longer live here. We live over here by sake of our union with Christ. I can still see that over there. I may even still hear that old master over there calling. Don't go back over there. You can't. Don't be stupid. Don't be a fool. Turn your back and walk this direction. Walk as children of life, light. And this is why Paul says this in Romans 6, 11. Now he's built this entire argument. He's given you all the facts about who you are in Christ. And they're huge. They're magnificent. They are powerful, the truths concerning who we are in Christ. And he says in 6.11, So you also, Christian, just like Christ is dead to sin and alive to God, just like that, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. And I love that he says this in Christ Jesus. It's because you and I are in Christ Jesus, united with him. It's because we've been baptized into him, incorporated into him, that we now are dead to sin and alive to God. But we got to believe that. Why? Because I didn't see that happen, right? I didn't see it happen. I came to Christ. I placed my faith in him and nothing really. I didn't see anything. But something did happen. Something significant. And so Paul says, you got to believe it. This is what's true of you. And if you believe it, then, of course, why would you continue to go on? You can't. Understanding this, you can't. Clearly, beloved, what Paul says in verses 1 through 10, some of it, clearly, I'm going to tell you, it's difficult. It's difficult to fully grasp or understand. And, and that's... Bible preachers recognize that. All Bible, most Bible preachers recognize that in commentary. Some of this is difficult, okay? I get that. But even so, even so, believe the main idea. And I believe the main idea comes through loud and clear. And that is concerning what is true of us because of our union with Christ. 
And I'm going to say it again. We are dead to sin and alive to God. And now the challenge for us is to continually believe that to be true and let that wonderful truth empower us to live for Christ and experience ever-increasing victory over sin in our lives. Next week, what we'll do is we'll look at some of the specific ways. Paul now kind of gets more specific, and he exhorts us, how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we live for God? Well, it begins with knowing our truth, the truth about our identity in Christ. It begins with that, so that's what Paul starts with. You've got to believe that. Believing that now, you can present your members as instruments of righteousness rather than how you used to present them as instruments of unrighteousness. So we'll talk about that more next week. I said this at the beginning. Let me say again. If a married person was acting single, we know what that does to a relationship, right? We know what that does. It, it destroys the... I mean, it messes it up. You're not single anymore, dorkish. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's what you would, you would say. You can't live like... You can't pretend I'm not here. Hello! Where there's two people here. I mean, these are the kind of... And these things happen in marriage, right? Especially if you've been single a long, long time. I mean, I was married so young, I don't even know what single is. So I, I don't. I, I don't. But there's people that have been single a long time, and then they get married, and then it's like... Well, I've always been single. You know, I'm just, it's, I'm having a hard time. This is how I've always lived. These are the habit patterns of my life. I get that. I get it. I get it. You're no longer single. You're married. Well, Jeremy, you don't understand. I mean, I've been, I've been sinning this sin for so long. I, I don't know how to break free from it. I mean, I, I don't think I can. No, that's not true. That's not true, my friend. That's not true. You can because the breaking's already been done. Now live it out. You're, you're no longer under sin You're dead to sin, my friend. You're united with Christ. The very power of that dwells within you. Christ's power. You can, you must stop living as if you're not dead to sin. You see? Father in heaven, we thank you for this this text. Lord, help us to understand it. Some complicated things here, Father, just... Because, you know, we have a hard time sometimes just grasping everything. These things are so big, so magnificent, these spiritual truths, these realities. Lord, help us to get it. Help, us, help it to click. And, Father, may we believe it. Believing it, may we live in light of it. May we recognize who we are. I, I just think about, Father, all the, the nonsense I hear sometimes on television concerning some of these so-called preachers. And, and what they want to talk about, Father, is, you know, because of who we are, then, then they say we should, we should have no disease in our body. Or, or because of who we are, we should have wealth and be prosperous, you know, because we're children of the king and all of this nonsense. And yet, I don't, I don't hear anything about these kind of passages in Romans 6, Father, it's a burden to my heart and soul because this is what people are exposed to on a regular basis. Father, no, this, this is who we are. Dead to sin. This is what we should be thinking about. This is what's true of us, Father. This is what's true of us. That we are dead to sin and alive to you in Christ Jesus, therefore, we can no longer continue in sin. These are the things that would really make a difference 
in our homes and in our families and in our marriages, if these were the things we focused on. For they're your things, Father. These are the things that are important for our good and your glory. We may be poor in this world. We may, we may die with every disease under the sun. We may not prosper in our businesses. That may not happen. But Father, if we are living for you, if we are ridding ourselves of sin through trusting in these truths that we find here, then something great is happening in our lives. That is what we can glory about. That is what we should get excited about. For our disease-free bodies and our true prosperity comes in the next life. That's the promise. In the kingdom to come. In this life, we are to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way we can do that, Father, is because you have set us free from the dominion of sin, and we have been risen again in Christ to walk in newness of life for your glory, for your purposes. Father, help us to do it. Help us to believe. Help us to trust. In Jesus' name, amen.